affected by an infection. So immunocompromised patients, patients with cancer post-transplant. Um, so those sorts of patients, particularly if they have cholangitis. Good morning, good evening, or good afternoon. Welcome to Endocast. I'm your host, Tony Ray. This is episode nine with our physician guest, Raman Muthasami from the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, talking to us about their recent experiences with single-use duodenoscopes and moving into the future. Endocast is a GI-focused podcast for clinicians by clinicians, presented to you by Boston Scientific. Together, we'll take a closer look at the data, techniques, and insights of endoscopy that matter most to listeners like you. Dr. Muthasami, welcome to Endocast. Thank you, Tony. Great to be with you today. So it is October 27th in Los Angeles, and there is a buzz in the air. Any reason why you think that might be? Well, it's uh, probably, it's been a rough year uh, in general, 2020, but it's been a good year for LA sports teams. The Lakers are champions and, uh, and the Dodgers are going for their first World Series in 32 years tonight. I can tell you, uh, one of my colleagues is sitting here next to me, Rich, and uh, his son is a huge Dodger fan and so am I, although we are both Yankee fans originally, but we've adopted the Dodgers over the last uh, decade here in LA and they are way overdue. Absolutely. They've been knocking on the door for several years, and I think they've shown a, a lot of uh, grit and metal in the playoffs, uh, coming back from a, a tough loss in Game 4 to, to win Game 5. And uh, so we're, we're hopeful that uh, tonight or preferably tonight, tonight or tomorrow night, we'll, we'll make it happen. Bring it home. So with that said, I'll introduce Dr. Muthasami, Medical Director of Endoscopy and Professor of Clinical Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. I have the honor this morning of introducing a friend and one of the top thought leaders in global endoscopy. Dr. Muthasami completed his undergraduate degree at Stanford, completed medical school at University of Washington, went back east to do his internship at Duke and his residency at Duke, completed his three-year fellowship at UCSF in San Francisco, and advanced fellowship at UCI working with Dr. Ken Chang. You'll quickly find out if you go to pubmed.com that he's also one of the most published physicians nationally. And if you search his name, you'll have your hands full. That's for sure. In addition, Dr. Muthasami is also the associate editor of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, VP of the SoCal Gastro Society, ASGE Quality Assurance and Endoscopy Committee, former chair of the AGA Center for GI Innovation and Technology, and serves as one of two governors for ACG Chapter of Southern California. And with that said, I need to take a break, <laughs> Dr. Muthasami, because I'm, I'm out of breath. <laughs> uh, so first question for you. I, I think um, it's always great for folks to get to know our guests on Endocast on a personal level. My understanding is you grew up in a small town in South Dakota, and your dad was a general surgeon. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you grew up and how you're, what kind of stuff you were interested in when you were a kid? Uh, yeah, that's a great question, uh, Tony. I grew up in a very small town in South Dakota. My dad was a career VA physician, uh, and he um, was a general surgeon who um, really worked uh, 300 miles from Denver and about 600 miles from 
Minneapolis, and so he did a lot of complex cases because otherwise they would have to, you know, go to these other hospitals, and it was kind of a big deal. So um, I really, you know, he's always been my, uh, you know, role model in medicine and, and life, and, uh, and uh, you know, I always was admired his dedication to his work, and, uh, you know, he really tried to bring a lot of new things to the small hospital, um, and I think um, I sort of learned my love of sort of medicine and procedures and new techniques and those sorts of things in part from, from him. And uh, it was a very small town. I, I, I grew up in a class, a graduating class of 62. Uh, and, um, you know, in that graduating class are a couple of CEOs of companies, a Tony Award winner. Um, so our class did okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of us have dispersed around the world. But, uh, but I was interested in you know, sports, uh, you know, other things. Uh, I, I was in debate a lot, uh, which probably was good preparation for speaking and organizing and talking and those sorts of things. Um, but I was fortunate enough to go to a small high school where you didn't have to be great to, to do anything. I see the competition in a lot of schools today. And if you wanted to play on a team in my school, you, you pretty much started. So, uh, you know, it's not that way in the world anymore, it seems. But but it was a good place to grow up, uh, and I have a lot of good memories from my time there, and um, certainly uh, sort of firm to who I am today. Appreciate you sharing that. So you've built quite the program here at UCLA. Can you talk to us a little bit about your leadership philosophy? Well, I think, um, you know, my philosophy is that uh, you have to, to, to sort of share the ball in a sense, that uh, you have to allow each member of the team to have an opportunity to, to grow and spread their wings. And, um, you know, we've tried to identify, you know, areas within the ever-burgeoning space of interventional endoscopy for team members to kind of take the lead and sort of, you know, build up uh, portions of our program. Uh, so, for example, my, my partner, Ali Sederad, has done a tremendous job in all our third space work and expanding our POEM program, G-POEM, ESD, all those sorts of things. Um, uh, we have a translational pancreatologist, Stephen Kim. Uh, we're starting to develop our bariatric program with two of our junior partners, um, you know, Danny Issa and uh, uh, Adarsh Thacker. Uh, and now we're developing an anti-reflex program with, uh, with several of us. So we really try to have each of us sort of um, expand in different areas and not have, you know, someone uh, kind of lead everything. Uh, so certainly sometimes the, the senior partner ends up sort of um, dominating things. And, and, I, and I think that um, if you can share the ball a little bit, everyone's a little bit more motivated and, and feels a little bit more um, engaged as part of the team. Well put, and I see a lot of that at Boston Scientific, fortunately, as well, especially on my team here in, in L.A. What advice would you give to someone that's young in GI that wants to build a career in academics? Well, I think, uh, I think the key uh, is to try to target areas where you think there's opportunities and where you have a great deal of passion, right? You're always going to find things that you enjoy doing don't seem like work and you'll be willing to put those extra hours which in invariably it'll require to become a leader in an area so certainly the the clinical workload and all of the the sort of day-to-day -day stuff we have to do can be you know all consuming and so you're really going to have to have a passion for something to sort of do the the traditional nights and weekends that that are usually required uh, the other thing I would mention is um, two important things. Uh, it's really key to have a great mentor, and that could either be at your own institution or somewhere else. 
um, and uh, someone to help guide you and, and give you advice about uh, whether it's study design or just general what's the state of the field, and probably to focus um, because uh, our field, uh, I speak of an interventional endoscopist, but even within interventional, there's so many areas. And so are you going to become a third place person? Or are you going to focus on pancreatic or biliary? Or are you going to focus on bariatrics or something else, endohepatology? So there's so many different things. So I think those key things are follow your passion, find a mentor, and focus. Great advice, even for someone that's outside of the GI world. So shifting gears real quick, in a recent podcast, your friend, Dr. Komandori from Northwestern, talked to us briefly on the FDA's post-market surveillance sampling and culture studies. What's your perspective on the final published outcomes and the FDA guidance associated with that study? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the final outcomes were that about 5% of the two most commonly used uh, manufacturer reusable devices had some level of pathogenic bacteria. Okay. And, uh, and I think that was important because traditionally we've always had sort of a, a faith in our reprocessing protocol saying that if there's a problem, if there's contamination, it's because the steps were not followed. And these are samples that were submitted from sites with manufacturer oversight. So this was data submitted by the manufacturers, not, uh, not outside. And even their own submissions show that one in 20 scopes that were at centers that were really expert centers, you know, typically high volume experienced centers had uh, contamination, which shows that the problem is real um, and that it is really hard to clean these devices, even in the best of hands and with substantial experience. And how about the FDA guidance as a result of that study? Yeah, the FDA suggested then based upon that, that, you know, if it's this hard to sort of adequately, you know, uh, reprocess these devices, we need to come up with ways to simplify it. And that, that includes both enhanced reprocessing as well as transitioning to scopes that are either partially or uh, have disposable, have some, some component of disposable components or entirely uh, single use or disposable themselves. And um, I think the idea behind that is to help sort of uh, get this number as low as possible. Obviously, the, the whole phrase getting to zero is to try to completely eliminate this, and, and, and this is the steps that they've recommended. And so now it's my understanding that the FDA has mandated a third post-market surveillance study with all three reusable scope manufacturers that offer distal end caps. Can you explain to us what that will entail, and when do we anticipate the results are obtainable? Yeah, so I, I think that this is important because uh, we're, you know, institutions, healthcare facilities um, are being asked to spend money on new devices, new technologies, new products. And of course, if you're going to spend the money, you want to make sure <laughs> that you're getting your money's worth. And so you want to make sure these things actually work. Uh, and so theoretically, uh, you know, some of these things make sense, but, but we've learned that many things that are theoretically should be better turn out not to be, right? So we need to have the evidence. And so um, I think it's important that these kind of studies do get done to guide us in terms of which are probably the best options for it. In terms of when we'd expect to see this, um, you know, first of all, we have to get enough sites 
to purchase these devices so that we can actually have a significant post-market uh, analysis. And then it'll probably take a fair amount of time. I think it took uh, you know about a year or so to get the data for the reusable sort of standard fixed-end devices. So I would anticipate that we're probably, before we get meaningful data, probably it's probably at least a year away, uh, possibly longer if, if these devices take a little longer to incorporate in the marketplace. In 2018, you and Dr. Ross from Virginia Mason authored research that measured the economic burden of enhanced reprocessing. Can you talk to us a little bit about those results, Dr. Muthasami? Yeah, we kind of looked at that time, uh, just kind of compared some of the strategies that uh, the FDA had initially approved for enhanced reprocessing in 2015. So we compared single HLD to double HLD, ethylene oxide, or culture and quarantine. Uh, per acetic acid, we didn't include, not a lot of folks use that, although that is the fourth option. And then we sort of broke it down into two sizes of hospitals. Hospitals that did modest numbers of ERCPs, typically less than 200, and then very large facilities that do, you know, 1,200 or larger. And as you'd expect, the cheapest per sort of uh, cost, um, you know, in terms of reprocessing uh, was single use, which is around $80. I think uh, double HLD was about uh, 120 And I think, uh, you know, the most was around 210 or 220 for, for the uh, for the um, ethylene oxide, I think was the most expensive. So there's about a threefold variation. And we said that given the extended time for reprocessing, the number of scopes purchased per institution would vary. Smaller institutions would need less, bigger institutions would need more. And the annual cost for a large institution to incorporate some of these things, depending on which one they did, could be up to $400,000. And so, you know, smaller institutions typically in the little bit less than 100000 range. So obviously, the more you do, the more this is going to affect you in terms of cost. But it sort of, go, and that's a per annual basis, um, you know, in terms of, so, um, so I think that really shows, um, you know, kind of the impact this can have on the, on the financial bottom line. So pre-FDA clearance of the first single-use duodenoscope, you participated in a randomized benchtop simulation study comparing a prototype single-use duodenoscope with three reusable scopes. What was your takeaway from that study? Yeah, so this was a, an ex vivo synthetic model. Uh, we compared the three major uh, scope manufacturers for uh, reusable devices with the Exalt single-use device. And we had a, a panel of expert endoscopists do this. And we had four tasks that we had to sort of do. One was sort of a, a guide wire locking, uh, so cannulate and, and lock a wire. Uh, one was to place a plastic stent. One was to place a metal stent. And one was to uh, sort of do a basket sweep uh, in, in this model. So these were the tasks. Um, and basically what we found was is that the Exalt uh, device performed very well uh, in, across these tasks. It, we timed them. Uh, basically there was no statistically significant difference in times to do the task between the scopes. We asked the endoscopist to rate the ease of doing these things. And, and essentially, um, you know, they were, they were all comparable. The only differences we found were that uh, the exalt was felt to be a little bit stiffer, but again, this is in a synthetic model and, and so forth um, in terms of the device. And then uh, the optics actually uh, were actually uh, reduced st statistically significantly in one of the reusable devices, uh, but the exalt's optics were comparable to, to the others. So 
Um, so those were really the main findings, and it just gave us some some data, at least in an in a ex vivo model, that the device uh, was comparable to existing equipment. And then fast-forwarding uh, just a few months, in 2019, you were the principal investigator of an IRB-approved clinical trial that spanned six academic medical centers. This was a clinical assessment of a new single-use duodenoscope. How did the results fare in that study? Yeah, so that was a study that uh, each of us um, started off by doing two to three cases where we just advanced the scope uh, to the papilla. And you might ask, why did you do that? But as, as my good friend and colleague, Dr. Ross, uh, Andy Ross at Virginia Mason, um, mentions, you know, we'd spent so long in a, in a pig model that we wanted to make sure we hadn't created the perfect duodenoscope for a pig. So, so we wanted to make sure that the device actually went in in proper position in, and so forth, and, and it did. Um, so after we did about 13 cases of that across the sites and said, okay, we're, we're good to go, uh, we did sequential ERCPs on the days in which we were set up to do the single-use device. So it wasn't necessarily every day, but when we knew. And, and to be honest, um, my first case was a hyalur stricture case uh, with bilateral stenting, and that wasn't probably my choice for the first case to use this device on. So it, you know, these were mostly level two and three ERCPs, uh, relatively um, you know, complicated cases, reflective of a university setting. And uh, basically only two out of the 60, uh, so 96.7%, uh, were able to, to be performed successfully. There's only about a 3.3% crossover from, this reuse, from the single-use device to a reusable to complete the case. Um, and the complication rates were, were relatively, uh, you know, comparable to traditional ERCP, around 5%. Uh, and then the, the rate, user ratings... Um, you know, with 10 being comparable to your existing device, were basically a median of nine uh, for pretty much all of the various parameters tested. So um, we felt, uh, you know, comfortable and good about the preliminary results. And how were these cases chosen? Were they consecutive or randomized? Or Yeah, so uh, the study wasn't randomized, Tony, but uh, the patients were consecutive, but on the days that we were set up to do these cases. So it wasn't necessarily every day. I think I did um, two or three days where I, I did them in sequence, and then there was a gap, and then we finished up uh, with another couple of days to finish. So, uh, But we had to do every case that was uh, where a patient consented and met criteria, so there was no um, investigator selection option. It was really consecutive. So um, one interesting thing about the study was that even though the device was not FDA cleared at the time, um, and this is a complex procedure associated with the greatest rates of failure and the highest rates of adverse events, uh, the patients really appreciated the opportunity to, to be part of the study and to have such a device. And, you know, we probably had 85 to 90% of the patients approached said yes, uh, despite the lack of FDA clearance at the time, which I think speaks to at least a consumer um, sort of appreciation and, and demand uh, for these kinds of options. And so I thought that was very interesting given given the setting. So then shifting gears towards post-FDA clearance, can you talk to us about when you might use a single-use duodenoscope from a clinical perspective? Sure. Well, I think the obvious choice is in a patient with a known multidrug-resistant organism where you're trying to sort of protect the fleet and future patients um, of course, that isn't always known, and fortunately, at least at this time, uh, those patients are still a small percentage. As time goes on, of course, unfortunately, that may become 
uh, a different story uh, as our overall rate of MDROs seems to be increasing. The other options, uh, I think, fall into three categories. One is to help logistics. So, for example, hey, we're going to the operating room. It's e easier to use a single-use device without some of the issues there. Or perhaps uh, we don't have a scope or our loaner just broke or something like that, and it's sort of a, a backup system so you don't have to find a scope or if you're running low on inventory. It might allow you to perform um, device procedures in sort of satellite facilities that where you do a fairly low number. You may not have the full reprocessing set up. Maybe you don't want to ship the scopes from one facility to another. Uh, being able to do a limited number of cases with just a single-use device may help you expand your footprint in terms of clinical services. And then the other two categories I would say are who are the patients who would potentially be most affected by an infection? So immunocompromised patients, patients with cancer, post-transplant. Um, so those sorts of patients, particularly if they have cholangitis, um, or procedures that are known to be at higher risk for potential transmission. And I think those include things that have bacterial translocation or indwelling stents that potentially can have long-term inoculation. Multiple prior studies, including our own data, show that the placement of a stent is a significant risk factor for transmission of infection if the device is contaminated. Um, other potential procedures associated with translocation include cholangioscopy, biliary RFA, so those sorts of things. So I think if you break it down into known MDRO, potential sort of uh, logistics-type things, or high-risk patients or high-risk procedures. Appreciate that, Dr. Muthasam. I know there's a lot of folks are going to be interested in that uh, response. One consideration identified by programs that have ad already adopted a single-use device for ERCP is the need for a scope designation system. Does your program employ any process or flag certain patients or cases, and what does that look like? Yeah, when I presented to our value analysis committee, uh, you know, some of these issues sort of came up. And, and so in our institution, we have uh, primarily used this on inpatients who are either post-transplant or, or an immunosuppressed or who are cancer patients who are receiving chemotherapy and immunosuppressed for that reason who come in with cholangitis or an obstructed biliary tree. So those kind of fit those, you know, two of those criteria that I mentioned, uh, stent change and, and, and sort of high-risk patient. So in those patients, we tend to use uh, Exalt, uh, a lot of our cholangiocarcinoma exchanges, stent exchanges, et cetera. Um, and then we've also used it uh, to some degree as a, as, a, um, as a backup system. Sometimes we do run low on scopes and, and uh, if we are able to avoid a delay in care or service, um, we will use the device. Finally, with the recent uh, Medicare pass-through payment that's been approved for, for single-use devices, uh, we are doing uh, some Medicare outpatients, uh, for whom this is applicable to, uh, under that uh, pass-through code. Well, we're lucky enough today to have UCLA's fourth-year advanced fellow, Jennifer Fan, who actually completed her residency and her three-year fellowship at UCLA. And Dr. Fan, you've got a unique perspective, having trained with many different scopes and modalities. First off, welcome to Endocast. I appreciate the cameo. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experience? 
Yeah, so I have the unique opportunity at UCLA to, as you said, train um, across different scopes. And the unique opportunity in particular to train with the Exalt scope. And I think I've done quite a few. And I can say that uh, the learning curve to using the Exalt scope is very quick. Um, it's very uh, useful in terms of being able to learn how to cannulate a duct in order to learn to do different types of endoscopy or ERCP techniques while using the Exalt. For me in particular, as a female interventionalist, uh, the Exalt is very ergonomic. It's very light in weight. It's very um, easy for me to use. And I really appreciate that in the design of the scope. I'm able to learn the feel of what the scope, um, how the scope moves and what it feels like and able to quickly kind of change technique, change positioning in order to achieve and uh, what I need to do and to successfully complete an uh, uh, ERCP. So it's been a great pleasure to be able to work with the Exalt and I hope that other uh, interventional trainees also get to use the Exalt given that it's likely to be in future hospitals and it's important to be able to learn how to adapt to these things while in training. Great. We appreciate that perspective, Dr. Fan, and I know there's a huge group of advanced fellows that will look forward to hearing this when we release it. Great. One quick question. Yes. Who do you like in the World Series tonight, Dodgers or the Tampa Bay Rays? You know, because I'm in L.A., I'll have to say the Dodgers, but I am from the Bay Area originally, so if there was ever a way that the Giants could get back in it, I'd be down for that in the future. Wow, those are fighting words, Dr. Mutasami. Okay, perfect. Thanks again for making an appearance on Endocast, and we will release you to your next ERCP. Thank you. Thank you so much. Probably you, with Exalt. <laughs> Thank you. So back to Dr. Muthasami, what advice would you give a physician working with administration that's trying to bring in single-use technology to their hospitals? Well, I think... Um I think you can go to your administrators and say the preliminary, the preliminary data show that the scope is comparable in terms of efficacy. Um, it eliminates a lot of the headaches uh, associated with the uncertainty about the adequacy of reprocessing. And uh, I think the, uh, the federal government and the FDA have uh, recognized the importance of this. This has been a priority for them. And they have not only provided single-use duodenoscopes a, a breakthrough designation, but uh, they really are putting their money where their mouth is with this pass-through code, which I think can significantly um, reduce the, the economic burden associated with this. And it'll, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, how commercial insurers respond in, in the months ahead. Final point, Dr. Muthasami. First off, uh, this has been incredible having you here. I've been, we've been talking about sitting down for this podcast for it seems like several months. We covered a ton of ground. What's the one thing that you would like the audience to take away from your podcast today? What's the one silver bullet? Well, I think with this whole issue of, of uh, you know, single-use devices and, and the risk of uh, uh, infection transmission through ERCP and duodenoscopes, uh, I, I think that first we have to realize that this is something that we should acknowledge as real. Um, it is a real issue, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's an opportunity for us to make an important change and really take endoscopy to the next step. And I think, uh, you know, you heard Dr. Fan talk about how she appreciated the ergonomics of a device. And, uh, and I think there's an opportunity now to tailor-make 
devices. And so, uh, you know, I think uh, in addition to the advantages of infection control, we should really view this as a way to take a step forward. So perhaps we can make devices for people who are left-handed or stiffer or, or, you know, thinner versions that we might want to use on select patients who we know have a Boeing problem which could facilitate our procedures. So there's sort of an attitude that, oh, we don't like to talk about adverse events or complications, but this is really an opportunity to really um, advance uh, the field of endoscopy and that goes beyond, you know, obviously centrally involves infection control uh, and prevention but really can go beyond that to, you know, ergonomics and, uh, and sort of ease of use and, and, and other aspects. So, so I think um, that's really the, the take-home point I'd like our, our listeners to, to, to leave with. Great point, Dr. Mutasami. You, you make everything look easy, including this podcast today. I know it's not that easy. Uh, so thanks for coming on to Endocast. I appreciate you having, you, having you today, and obviously I appreciate uh, the uh, partnership over the years too. Well, Tony, uh, it's an honor to be here. I appreciate the kind words and, and really enjoyed being with you today. And that's Endocast. Please follow Boston Scientific Endoscopy on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. You can also visit our virtual education platform, EduCare. That's E-D-U-C-A-R-E dot bostonscientific.com and choose gastroenterology. The site features over 180 resources, including physician-led educational videos, lectures, case studies, device training videos, procedural tips, and techniques. Thanks for listening. Endocast listeners, an important disclaimer. These materials are intended to describe common clinical considerations and procedural steps for the use of reference technologies, but may not be appropriate for every patient or every case. Decisions surrounding patient care depend on the physician's professional judgment in consideration of all available information for the individual case. Boston Scientific does not promote nor encourage the use of its devices outside of their approved labeling. Case studies are not necessarily representative of clinical outcomes in all cases as individual results may vary. The law restricts devices to sell, buy, or on the order of a physician. Indications, contraindications, warnings, and instructions for use can be found on the product labeling supplied with each device.